I want to begin a new series today. We're going to do this up until um, the week before Easter. Um, I probably won't do a Palm Sunday message because I'm going to do this series here. But we will do an Easter message. But I wanted to, I just wanted to give you the title here. It's called Living Out Your Faith in Real Time. Um, and it's the first chapter, part one, first chapter of the book of James. And I want to begin with sharing a story with you in 1978. Now, this is a true story. Now, listen to this. In 1978, Thomas Hansen of Boulder, Colorado, sued his parents for $350,000 on the grounds of malpractice of parenting. Mom and dad had botched his upbringing so badly that he charged in his suit that he would need years of costly psychiatric treatment. So he sued them for $350,000. I don't know if he won. I have no idea, but sounds like the boy needed a spanking is what he needed. (laughs) On the other side of the coin of that... Listen to this. The evidence is convincing that the better our relationships are at home, the more effective we are in our careers. If we're having difficulty with loved ones, that difficulty will be translated into reduced performance on the job. In studying the the millionaires of America from the U.S. News and World Report, a picture of the typical millionaire is an individual who has worked 8 to 10 hours a day for 30 years and is still married to his high school or college sweetheart. That sounds fishy to me there, but a New York executive um, search, a New York executive search film in a study of 1,365 corporate vice presidents discovered that 87% were still married to their one and only spouse and that 92% were raised in a two-parent family. The evidence is overwhelming that the family is the strength and foundation of society. Strengthen your family ties, and you'll enhance your opportunity to succeed. I don't disagree with that, because I think the family unit is under major attack from the left from our society. Destroy the family, destroy America. So what about the church then? What about the church? You know, they say that the best thing about the church is that it's like a family, which is also one of the worst things about the church (laughs) because it's like a family because not all families can get along with one another. You know, I have shared this story before, but I think it's worth uh, you listening to again. It's the story about a mother who, she was out in the kitchen, she was working, getting supper prepared, when she heard her seven-year-old son screaming. So she runs into the next room to see what was wrong and discovered that her two-year-old daughter is pulling her brother's hair. So the mother gets the baby's hand unclenched and says, I'm sorry, honey, your sister doesn't know what it feels like to have her hair pulled. So the mother goes back into the kitchen, starts working, when all of a sudden she hears her daughter screaming. So she runs back in and says, what now? 
And the brother said, well, she knows what it feels like now. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So do you ever, do you ever stop and imagine or think of what Jesus's family was like? Do you ever stop and think about that? You know, I wonder sometimes how he got along with his brothers and sisters. We know that Jesus had four brothers, and we know from Scripture that he had at least two sisters because it uses the word sister in the plural form. We just don't know if there was more than two, but we know there was at least two. So it mentions those sisters. But Jesus had a younger brother, and his name was James. And I can only imagine what it must have been like for James growing up with Jesus in the household. Can't you imagine? Can't you hear Mary saying, why can't you be like your brother Jesus? Think about that for a minute. <laughs> what do you say to something like that? You know, the God of the universe. Can't you just be like God more often? You know, <laughs> I can't imagine. Who was James? You know, in the scripture here, it, it talks about Several men who, who wore the name of James in the New Testament. There was James, the son of Zebedee, who was the brother to who? Does anybody know? He was apostle. What's that? To the apostle John. That's right. Then there was James, the son of Alphaeus, who was a disciple and probably was the brother to... Anybody want to take a guess? Matthew. He was probably the brother to Matthew, who was also an apostle. Then there was James, the father of Judas, who was one of the disciples. Then there was James, the brother of Jesus. And I believe that he is the one who seems the most likely candidate for the author of the book of James. How many of you have read the book of James? It's probably... It's, it's an easy read, it's a quick read, but it's so practical in some of the stuff that's shared in that book. You know, when, when Jesus first started his ministry, James and the other brothers did not believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry here. They didn't believe in him. Um, it says in, in John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, even his own brothers did not believe in him. I think that James thought he was a, a, a just that crazy older brother you know, every family seems to have one of them. And so, so it was just that crazy older brother. And as I said, they didn't really believe in him. And it didn't happen until Jesus died and he rose again. That changed things for them. After Jesus rose from the grave and he appeared to, to James, James not only became a believer, but he also became a really important leader in the Jerusalem church. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul called him a pillar, a pillar in the church at Jerusalem. That's how important he was. It is this James who wrote the book of James in the New Testament. So as as Jesus' brother, James, I think he had a unique perspective and a unique faith. You know, I I think that James was a pretty down-to-earth type of fella. I do. I think he was. I think that James was concerned with real needs in a real world. There was one person, I think it was Martin Luther, who didn't, couldn't stand the book of James. I think that's who it was. You know, he thought it shouldn't even be in the Bible. 
But, and, and, and so, so I think that James was concerned about real needs and a real world. And, and when he saw the evidence and became convinced that his older brother really was God, not just the son of Mary and his stepbrother, I think that he, his faith became real. I do. He, he began to live out his, his, his real faith in real time. And it showed up in his writings. So although his letter, James, defines real faith and how it works in real life, he was literally living out his faith in real time, I believe. So he deals with the real troubles that we all endure. He deals with the real temptations that all of us face, every single one of us faces, and the real truth about Jesus Christ. So James is all about where the rubber meets the road. Real faith for real life in real time. And so he starts his letter by talking about Christians and their burdens. Christians and their burdens. And in regards to the burdens we bear, the trials that we face, James makes, I think, one of the most peculiar statements of the New Testament. I think he does. Notice what it says there. We're going to read from the New Living Translation this morning for some of it, and then we'll go back to the NIV as well. But here's what he says in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He says, he says, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes, the Jewish believers scattered abroad. He says, dear brothers and sisters, When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Trouble and joy don't seem like they go in the same sentence. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Now the NIV says, And I'm more familiar with the NIV where it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Is there anyone here today who understands trouble? I mean, big-time trouble. Have any of you ever been in big-time trouble? You know, I'm not talking about, you you lost your keys kind of trouble or you and your wife had an argument on the way to church kind of trouble. I'm talking about huge, faith-shaking trouble, the kind of trouble that makes you look forward to- towards heaven and it makes you want to scream out, Why me? Why, why God? Why me? Do you ever feel like God is just some bully that keeps knocking you down and you wonder how in the world you're ever going to get back up? You know, because I've known... I've known a lot of Christians who have this concept of God and have this attitude towards God that he's he's just a bully and he doesn't want me to have any happiness. Any of you ever felt that way? Well, let me tell you, giraffes know all about that. Say, what? (laughs) Giraffes? Has any of you ever done any research or any study on on giraffes. In his book, A, A View from the Zoo, Gary Richmond tells 
about the birth of a giraffe, and it is absolutely fascinating. It's rather a strange thing. The, the, the first thing to emerge are the baby giraffe's front hooves and his head. Okay? A few minutes later, that plucky newborn is hurled forth, and that baby falls approximately 10 feet onto the ground, onto its back. Within seconds, he rolls to the upright position with his legs tucked under his body, and from this position, he sees the world for the first time. The mother giraffe lowers her head long enough to just take a quick look. What did I just do? Okay. <laughs> what did I just create? Then she positions herself directly over the calf. She waits for about a minute, and then she swings her long, pendulous leg outward and kicks her baby so that it cartwheels head over heels. That's not very nice, you know. How should a mother do that to her child? So if the baby doesn't get up, she takes another swing at it. The, the struggle is to rise, you know, to, to, to that, that momentous, you know, just to get up, for that baby to get up. And so as, as the baby calf grows tired, the mother kicks it again to stimulate its effort. Finally, the calf stands for the first time on its wobbly legs. Then the mother does something absolutely remarkable. Actually, I think it's kind of downright nasty. She, she does, you know. She kicks him and knocks him down again. She knocks him right down. She kicks him off of his feet. Why do you think she does that? Well, what she wants is she wants him to remember or her to remember how they got up. Because you see, in the wild, baby giraffes must be able to get up quickly as possible to stay with the herd, to stay where there's safety. For you see, that baby and all babies in the wild have adversaries like lions and hyenas and leopards and wild hunting dogs who would love to have that baby giraffe as a dessert. <clears throat> but if it was not for the mother's seemingly cruel treatment, that baby wouldn't last a day. Now, what does that have to do with us? You know what, maybe, maybe, just maybe, everything is going right for your way this time. I mean, everything's just going right for you. Maybe life couldn't be any better. But an hour or a day or a week or a month or maybe next year or the year after that, the bottom is going to fall out and trouble is going to come your way. John chapter 16 verse 33 tells us, in this world, you will have trouble. He doesn't say maybe you'll have trouble. He tells us, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus goes on to say, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We may not understand why we are being kicked around, but we have to trust God. We need to trust Jesus. We need to persevere. That's why James 1, 2 through 4 in the NIV says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, 
because you know that the, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. That's how that baby giraffe comes into life. And it matures completely, quickly, because if it doesn't, its life will be at stake. But what if the trouble isn't coming from some external circumstance? But what if that trouble in your life is coming from within? Well, James goes on to talk about this. He talks about Christians and their, and their battles, their, their troubles, the things that they face. Notice what it says there. We're going to start with James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. This is what it says. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say that God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own, notice, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and, and, and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all creation, of all he created. Temptation, folks, my temptations are going to be different than your temptations, probably. Temptations come in, in all kinds of shapes and sizes, and come, they, they also come in all kinds of levels of intensity. So whether it's that box of donuts tempting you to cheat on your diet, or a flirtatious co-worker tempting you to cheat on your spouse, there are different levels there. But nonetheless, the intensity can be great sometimes. You know, we all face temptations, whether they're large or small. And, and we, and we face those sometimes on a daily basis. You know, several years ago, there was a, a magazine called Discipleship Journal. And I'm not sure if it's still out. I don't know if they still publish it or not. But I used to get that magazine and it was really good. Well, the Discipleship Journal asked readers to rank the area of temptation with which they struggled with the most. What was the area that they struggled with the most? See if any of these hit home for you, okay? Let's see if they hit home. I'm going to start from number eight down to number one. Number, number eight was lying. Is that a temptation for you? Number seven was gluttony. That kind of surprised me that that one was on there, but... Maybe it shouldn't. Number six was jealousy. Is that a temptation for you? Number five was a tie between anger and bitterness and, and sexual lust, including porn. So that one became a tie for number five. 
Number four was laziness. Are you tempted by that? Number three was self-centeredness. Number two was pride. And the number one temptation, the number one that people had the hardest time with was materialism. That kind of surprised me, but it shouldn't. According Again, according to James, the first thing we need to know about temptation is that it comes from within. You know, I can't help but think of it as a horror film. Oh, the creature, the creature that came from within. That's kind of like the creature from the Black Lagoon. Remember that old movie? I loved that movie. But it, but it's like that. It, it, it almost reminds me of a, of a movie. Well, James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 from the New Living Translation says this. It says, and remember, when you are being tempted, do not say that God is tempting me. Don't blame it on God. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else to do wrong. Temptation comes from our own desires, our own evil desires, which entice us, and then they drag us away like that, like that, that horror film. You know, everyone gets dragged away and taken off somewhere, you know. So it came from within and it, and it drug me away. You know, it, it seems like our gut reaction when we're given into sinful desires is to blame someone else. That's kind of like our gut reaction. It's to blame someone else. You know, it it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If you remember in the Garden of Eden, when God confronted Adam about his sin, what did he say? Remember what he said? Well, yeah, (laughs) it's the woman that you gave me. She was the one. So God turns to Eve and she says, well, the devil made me do it. So, you know, there's, there's that blame shifting all the time there. Some people still try to get away with that one. You know, th- there was this woman, she comes home and she shows her husband this really, really expensive dress that she bought. And when her husband gets upset about how much she spent on that, she starts to joke, well, the devil made me buy it. And the husband says, um, well, you should have said, get thee behind me, Satan. And the woman said, I did. And he said, it looked as good from behind as it did from the front. (laughs) That's how we justify things, folks. How did Jesus deal with temptation? Do you remember how he dealt with it? When Jesus was tempted by Satan in Matthew there, he always dealt with with the the temptation on the basis of God's word. He always quoted the word of God. Three times he said, it is written. It is written. Well, what does that teach us? What does that teach us? Well, I believe it teaches us that when you know your Bible, the word of God, you can detect, you should be able to anyway, detect the bait of temptation. Detect the bait of temptation. You know, it, 
And maybe, maybe, just maybe, deal with it decisively and scripturally. You know, this is what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. That's what it means. So, regardless of what's tempting you, we have no one to blame but ourselves. Stop shifting the blame. Take it like a man or a woman. Accept that responsibility. You know, we we need to take responsibility and redirect our desires. Or we'll discover, as James points out, that temptation can be very destructive and dangerous. Notice what he says there from the New Living Translation in James chapter 1 verse 15. He says, he says, these desires give birth, they give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, what does it do? It, it, it gives birth to death. It leads to, it leads to spiritual death. Let me give you an example of this. A few years ago, <clears throat> I attended a sports banquet. Actually, I attended several of them. Um, it was a sports banquet and wild game dinner at the Flemington Church of Christ up in Lock Haven. It's where my brother, you, you might know him, Mark Riley, Mark Riley preaches. And each year, they would have someone come in and talk to the folks about something to do with hunting. That's what they would do. Well, that year that I was there, they happened to have this fella come in and he talked about hunting coyotes. Anybody ever go out and hunt coyotes? Okay. I've never hunted coyotes and I want to do that. He was sharing about the rise of the number of coyotes in our area. He talked about their habitat and he talked about the habits that coyotes have in their own little communities. He said, and this was interesting, he said, the way you hunt these creatures is you tempt them. You have to tempt them. You use a call, and he had a bunch of those calls there, uh, Fox's call. He, he says you use a call, and, and that call could have a number of sounds. One of the favorite sounds was a squealing rabbit that's been caught in something. And so that gets their attention and it entices them to come out into the open, which they normally wouldn't do. But who doesn't like a good and easy meal? <laughs> who doesn't like it? So what, what they have done, without even realizing it, these coyotes, they have come out into the open and they have made themselves vulnerable to that 223 round or that 556 round. And I've watched video after video of this happening. And once they get out into the open, it's over. Bang! And that coyote just crumbles up, dead as a doornail. All because he was enticed. He was tempted to come out of his safety area. Well, this man and his wife were shopping at a mall and this really nice-looking, shapely-looking woman in a short, form-fitting dress strolled right by. And this man's eyes followed her. And without looking up from the item she was examining, his wife said, was it worth the trouble that you're in now? 
It reminds me of the of the clip I've seen on TV, and I've seen it on the internet a couple times, where the guy is at the beach with his family, and he brings out his binoculars, and he's he's looking at all the scenery. You know, he's looking at all the women in their bikinis, and all of a sudden he goes like this, and there's his wife standing there looking right at him with her arms crossed like she's getting ready to pounce on him. You know, I felt sorry for that guy. <laughs> you know, it's never ever worth the trouble. Yielding to temptation has destroyed families, businesses, churches. It's destroyed witness, your witness, and it has destroyed souls. So how do we avoid temptation? Well, in that same study from the Discipleship Journal that I shared with you a little while ago, it mentioned, it mentioned earlier, and it, it, it revealed this. It said 84%, 84% of respondents were able to risk, re, resist temptation through prayer. Prayer can change things, folks. Absolutely can change things. We never should ever underestimate the power of prayer. And then he goes on to say in this, 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 Article 76% can avoid temptation by avoiding compromising situations. Don't put yourself into a situation where you're going to be compromised. And then 66% said avoided temptation by reading the Bible and memorizing Scripture. Which may be why James goes on And I think it is. I don't think there's any accident here. He goes on to talk about Christians and their Bibles, Christians and and the Word of God. Notice what it says. James tells us that real faith means getting into God's Word and getting God's Word into us. So here's what he had to say. Notice what it says there in James chapter 1. I'm going to look at verses 19 through 25. This is what it says. My dear brothers... Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word. Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after, and after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom And continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. A lot of good sense there. This is what real faith in real time is all about. You know, it is not only this, and not only this will I believe that it will help us to endure trouble. It will help us to avoid temptation. 
but but I think it's also a true test of Christianity. You know, I, I think that we need to understand that we need to be in our Bibles. We need to be reading our Bibles every single day. We need to be hearing good messages. You know, when we went to the WWW, we, we heard seven or eight just fantastic messages of encouragement. You know, maybe we need to even say an amen or two here and there. That's great. But God wants us, he wants us to be active listeners. He really does. He wants all of us to be active listeners. But the question is, then what? But but then what? There's the question. But then what? What are we supposed to do? Then what? Well, if you're doing, if you're, if you're doing, if all you're doing is listening, then you're only fooling yourself. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. He says, he says this, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Being a Christian is a lot like playing Simon Says when you were a kid. Remember that game? How many of you liked that game? I didn't like that game very much. When you play Simon Says, you have to listen carefully to make sure you hear what Simon says. But then you've got to do what Simon says. When you become a Christian, we start playing this game called Jesus Says. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, treat others the way you want them to treat you. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Jesus says, go, make disciples of all nations. But a lot of us, we don't want to play the right way. We just don't. We listen to what Jesus says. We memorize what Jesus says. We even have little small circle, little groups and Bible studies to, to discuss what Jesus says. But we don't always do what Jesus says. I think this is how it was explained pretty well. Francis Chan, love this guy. He's, he's such a humble preacher and he's got, he's had several books out, but Francis Chan explained it this way. He says, and I think this is pretty funny. He says, if I tell my daughter to go clean her room, she knows better than to come back a couple hours later and say, dad, I memorized what you said. I even can say it in Greek. You know, in fact, I'm going to have some friends over later and we're going to sit in a circle, similar to Bible study. We're going to sit in a circle and we're going to talk about what it would be like for me to clean my room. <laughs> Folks, are you getting the picture here? <laughs> you know, there was a, a 19th century industrial baron who once told Mark Twain this. He said, before I die, I mean to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. That's what I want to do. I want to climb to the top of Mount Sinai and I want to read aloud the Ten Commandments. Here's what Mark Twain said to him. Mark Twain replied, or even better, you could stay at home and just keep those Ten Commandments. 
You know, that's what real faith is all about. As, as James says, don't, don't just read your Bibles. Do what the Word of God says. Get into God's Word and get God's Word into you. So as we close this morning, Christians each day face burdens. Each day we face, we face the battle of temptation. We face all kinds of battles. But every day we have something, folks. We have the Word of God to get us through those battles, those burdens. And that Word which has been planted in us It's been planted in us, that Word of God. And that's what James 1 is all about. So so we need to live out real faith in real time. You know, when you are burdened by, by, by trouble or battling temptation, real faith helps you persevere and overcome. When you're confronted with biblical truth, real faith not only listens, but does. It not only listens, but it does what you're called to do. We're each called to do something. So over the next few weeks, we're going to dig into each chapter of the book of James and discover some nuggets that will help us discover what real faith looks like in real time. And we're going to explore living out our real faith in real time. That's what we're going to talk about. I'd like to do an in-depth study of this, maybe in the next year or two, taking each section at a time. This is really an overview of everything. But in the meantime, if your life is full of trouble and you're wrestling with, with temptation of any kind, here's what I want to do. I want to encourage you to put your faith in Jesus. You know, trust him, obey him, and rely on him to help you and to see you through. And if you need someone to pray with you, or you need someone to talk to, just know that our elders are here and I'm here, and you don't need to face these things alone. You can come to either one of us, any one of us, and we would be more than happy to sit down with you and to talk with you.